three, two, one, zero. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Welcome to Unearthed, out-of-this-world conversations about space mining with the people going after it. We are your hosts, Brandon and Jared, of Peter Lucas Project Management. While off-Earth mining has recently gained attention through an American executive order, as well as efforts by NASA and private space companies, the notion of space mining has actually been around for longer than you might think. Science fiction in the 1940s began to visualize a future where mining is happening off-Earth, and recent works such as the Expanse book and television series have pushed the idea more into the mainstream. But in a practical sense, space mining became a commercial enterprise in the early 2010s when companies began forming with the mission of developing off-Earth resources and pushing humanity off the planet, the sustainability of which depends on exploiting off-Earth resources. It's simply too difficult to carry everything off-Earth that we need to survive in the long term. Our guest today, Daniel Faber, was the CEO of the space exploration and technology company Deep Space Industries that from 2013 to its eventual acquisition in 2019 worked to prospect asteroids for valuable materials, harvesting asteroid material and processing those materials for use in space and on Earth. He sits on the board of advisors of the National Space Society and is the current CEO of OrbitFab, a company working to operate the first fueling stations in space. Thanks so much for taking the time to meet with us, Daniel. Pleasure to be here. So with Deep Space Industries having such a pioneering role in the visioning around the development of off-Earth resources, we'll start there today. DSI had what seemed to many as science fiction-esque goal to mine off-planet, yet it had a large founding group, you know, achieved as much as $10 million in revenue and was able to bring in superior talent over its six years of operation, I mean, present company included. What was it about DSI that really drew you in? Really, really funny story how I got involved with that. Planetary Resources had been founded, I guess, uh, six months before, uh, or at least announced six months before I found out about Deep Space Industries. And I'd seen Planetary Resources and thought, damn it, that was my business. Uh, I was going to do it in two years' time, I sort of putting all the pieces together. Anyway, I was then at a really small conference in the Isle of Man, of all places. And the, uh, the keynote speaker was Rick Tomlinson. I got chatting to him uh, at the bar. And, uh, and was telling him, you know, planetary resources, here's what I do. You know, I, I build these little satellites. And I'd known Rick for a number of years by then. But, um, yeah, I was talking about how I would use CubeSats to go out and do early prospecting missions and how really uh, low cost this could be and everything else. And so uh, he grabbed a napkin and he wrote a non-disclosure agreement on a napkin and slid it across the bar. <laughs> and I signed this napkin. And then he read me in on Deep Space Industries. A week later, I became the, um, the sort of chief spacecraft engineer. And, uh, and a, a month or two after that, the company was formed and I was one of the co-founders. So along with like 12 other people. Yeah, Rick, Rick brought together some absolutely amazing talent. He's a, he's a really good influencer, very, very visionary and charismatic. And so that sort of brought it together. But I've been looking at asteroid mining for years. In fact, I'd met uh, one of the other co-founders when I was in undergrad in Sydney in, in Australia. And I did my first sort of asteroid mission design, mission study uh, in Australia, and he was the mining technical expert on that. And then I traveled around the world and ran into a guy in California who was good at the trajectories and things. And both of those guys ended up as co-founders of Deep Space Industries, which I didn't realize until like a week or two after I'd started to engage in one the, on these telecoms. I'm like, I know all these people. It was hilarious. So <laughs> this group had kind of been traveling along themselves individually, trying to figure this out for a couple of decades before we came together as uh, as Deep Space Industries. Now, with DSI taking that 
three-pronged approach to prospecting, harvesting the materials and, and processing off earth. How far did you get along in kind of the each one of those paths? Deep space industry started really with a, um, a hypothesis to test, if you like. And a, a startup company is a, a temporary organization searching for a business model. And so the first business model that was tested there was there's billionaires that want to put money into this and we can we can take that money and make it happen. And over the first 18 months, two of the co-founders only were working full time on the, on the company. The rest of us were, were sort of waiting in the wings uh, and they, they tested that. They talked to a bunch of billionaires. They talked to a lot of people and it didn't pan out that way. Turns out people that are billionaires get there by not necessarily by taking a lot of risk. That was uh, that wasn't going to work. So I found a, an angel investor in um, in the Netherlands and, and Rick, the chairman, managed to do the work to get him into the into the company investing. And that was enough money that I could move to the US and come on full time. Then it was fairly obvious this model wasn't working. There weren't the billionaires that would fund this. Uh, so I suggested to the board, how about how about you give me a go? I've got a technology strategy here and I'll take it in another direction. So there were two other options that we had. One was to make a VCable play, uh, one that, that had a hockey stick growth and that VCs would then want to invest in. And the third one was to make a, a slower growth company just building off technology and building off products. And that takes a lot longer. And so we had these three financing options. And, Billionaires are off the table, left us with two financing options. And so I came in and said, well, how about I have a go at this? So the, the board agreed and, and uh, we went forward on that basis. And uh, we were able to raise enough money to hire an engineering team, but not really enough money. And asteroid mining is too risky for, for VCs. There's a lot of technology risk and VCs don't invest in technology risk. They only want to put their money in to test market risk once your technology works. And we had a lot of technology risk as well as a lot of market risk, as well as some geology risk and political risk and financing risk. That was all just just not really there for VCs. But the technology strategy we had uh, was enough to, to start building that. And so that's what we got. To, we got just enough money to hire the engineering team in. Uh, and actually, a large contingent of them came down from Canada, people that I'd worked with in, and knew in Canada. And so the core of Deep Space Industries was really a Canadian engineering team. And we set about solving a problem that, that we ran into when we tried to build the spacecraft to go out to an asteroid. We wanted to build the first prospecting spacecraft. And we ran into the problem that we couldn't build, buy a thruster. We couldn't buy something that, that could move our satellite off to an asteroid and bring it back and everything and do the job that we needed. And we talked to a lot of people and found out there are actually quite a lot of people who wanted to buy thrusters for small satellites that couldn't buy them. And so that became our product. And that became the core of our of our roadmap. So we were building thrusters that would serve this need for these small satellites. But then we did it in a way that was useful to us strategically for our big, hairy, audacious goal of mining asteroids. And that was to make the thruster run off water. And so effectively, it's a glorified steam kettle. You superheat the water, you eject the, eject the steam, the water vapor, and it pushes the satellite in the other direction. It's dirt cheap. It's really simple. It's kind of boring. Everyone's convinced we could do it. Nobody really wants to work on it. Everyone wants to buy it, though, because it solves their problem. And so that was the first. And then we mapped out a whole um, product line of thrusters, all of which use propellants that one day we could get from an asteroid, because we both need to have those thrusters to get anything back from the asteroid. We have to use the asteroid as that propellant. But also that created a market. It created uh, some demand in its orbit for those propellants. So effectively, we're bootstrapping our technology and a market and we're going to go to an asteroid and test them that way. And so we'll get the information on the geology. We're just able to tick off a whole bunch of those risks by going down this technology strategy path. And that was the whole thing that we put in place. 
And uh, yeah, that was decently successful. The, the thrusters started selling and, uh, and it was all looking good. Why, in your, in your mind, why isn't this pursuit of mining an asteroid still being actively pursued by these small, exciting startup companies like Deep Space Industries and Planetary Resources? Why, is it, why, do, why don't we see those in the marketplace these days? Well, I think that you do. This, these days, we're <laughs> a little less vocal than Planetary Resources and Deep Space Industries were. The yeah. reason, perhaps, that Deep Space Industries was so vocal was because Planetary Resources were so vocal, and we managed to ride on those coattails and provide sort of a counterpoint, and we'd always get quoted as the other asteroid mining company, which was great for us. Free publicity, they were sort of blazing the trail, and we just jog along behind them, uh, and actually worked out really well. And we were doing things somewhat differently, and our technology focus was different than theirs. They'd, they'd actually found a billionaire, which was great, uh, until until the guy decided, mm, maybe maybe not anymore, and then it disappeared, like that they had a risk in that model. But what you see now is a, a whole bunch of small companies. There are companies in Australia, there's companies in Canada, there's companies in Europe, there's companies in the US. Like, this didn't go away. What happened was, the trailblazing, the deep space industries and planetary resources, they were trailblazing companies. They moved the conversation globally. From, from deep space industries perspective, we created water thrusters as a new type of thruster, and there are now seven companies offering water-based thrusters. So we changed this, the technical scene in that way. And so, you know, very exciting what we did, but you start a company like that, you've got all the challenges of starting that the company you meet some success people get interested in it for different reasons you get pulled in different directions in the end bradford acquiring that out of europe was was a great thing it meant that the technology got to europe and, and could spread for bradford it meant they could bring their thrusters to the us so it's a very good uh, good sort of strategic acquisition for them so yeah not not disappointed at all that how that went how far along was deep space industries able to get their designs did they end up selling them off? Yeah, Deep Space Industries were, were selling thrusters. And so we started building these small things. They're quite literally about a couple of kilos, like tiny little tiny little things, about the size of a milk carton. And yeah, we started selling them. In fact, because no one else really had these thrusters, we were able to leverage that into building whole satellites. And so we won a, won a constellation of satellites because they needed the thrusters. We'd also found a partner that knew how to build the satellites really well, Space Flight Lab at University of Toronto in, in Canada. And so they were our supplier of the satellites and we had the thruster system to put in there. Then we organized the launch. We sort of did the, the project management around that and they built they built the spacecraft. And so that came together really well. And that was part of a sort of extended strategy, not just building the thrusters. I wanted to get us into slowly building full spacecraft. And in that way, when we started mining asteroids, we wouldn't be trying to sell to people who owned and built spacecraft this fuel in orbit because that disrupts the customer. The best thing I realized was let's be the customer. And if, if it actually reduces our cost of operations to have propellant in orbit, then we're not disrupting anybody else but ourselves. And we're able to pass on those benefits to our customers, which are the people that want to buy and, and operate satellites. So that was that was sort of the very long-term strategy. Uh, so yeah, we won a constellation of three satellites for, uh, for Hawkeye 360. And that, you know, that was also going well. So between the thruster sales and the, the spacecraft sales, that was the trajectory that we were on. That's so awesome. there are some of these tea kettle thrusters in operation today. <laughs> yeah, uh, we called them Comet. Actually, the, the first one, it was, it was really cool. The first one went up on a spacecraft owned by Capella here in San Francisco. And they turned it on and used it without even telling us. The first thing we heard was that they'd moved out of the way of a piece of debris. 
by using our thruster. Well, well, we just made the world a, a, a safer, cleaner place, right? That was great. They used a water-based thruster to get out of the way of debris and save making a lot of junk. Yeah, it was, it was fantastic. So now that you've moved to OrbitFab, what is the strategic direction for that company? OrbitFab is, is building gas stations in space. We're building the whole propellant supply chain and logistics. So if you think about this from the perspective of asteroid mining, a deep space industry, we bought a thruster that could run on a propellant that you could mine out of an asteroid. But the only way we could crack the market to, to be selling propellant was to be the customer. Now with OrbitFab, we're trying to change that market in a different way and create the market, create that propellant, you know, buying that thing of buying and selling propellant in orbit. In that way, eventually, I'd like to be the first company to place a, a purchase order with an asteroid mining company and buy their propellant. And so, yeah, it's just step two. So there's already thousands of satellites up there orbiting the Earth. Are the ones that are up there already able to take on fuel or will those be new satellites that are put up in the future with the intention of being able to be refueled? So none of the satellites that have been launched so far are designed to be refueled or designed to be serviced even. And there are about 2,500 satellites operational. Um, now, what, what we've seen in the last few years is a lot of filings with the regulators to launch a lot more satellites. So there's something like 40 or 50,000 satellites now on the books that are, have been licensed by the FCC to get launched. And it usually takes sort of four or five years for those constellations to really start building out. But that means a lot more satellites. Now, when we look at this ecosystem, yeah, the, no one's got a fueling port, right? That, that's the problem. In fact, we went out to buy a fueling port, and this will, this will sound similar now. We went out to buy a fueling port. We failed. No one would sell us one. So we decided we would build that. And that's what OrbitFab is doing today. We're a gas cap company. And so um, what we're trying to do now is encourage everybody to take this fueling port. And they need a they need a valve on there anyway to fill the satellite up on the ground. So what we've built is a drop-in replacement for that fill and drain valve is what they call it. So it's the same size, the same weight, the same cost, but it allows you to get refueled on orbit a lot easier. And so that's sort of been our, our main push. But you're right, there's all these legacy satellites that can't be refueled. Does that mean that we have no market? Effectively, yes, but there's now... 36 companies that are working on tow trucks in space. There's satellite servicing vehicles. Northrop Grumman have the first one operating commercially in geostationary orbit. They're attached to an Intelsat satellite and they're like a jetpack. They're providing all the thruster functions to fly it around. And so that's one business model. Other business models are to grab dead satellites and pull them out of orbit or to, to get a satellite that wants to be somewhere else and help to move it to a higher orbit or, or a, a different orbit or just to do inspection because the, the insurance industry is paying out claims with, with no data to what's happened. Companies see their satellites go dark and they, they're not quite sure why, or the solar arrays start producing less power. There's no imagery. Like, there's no way to go and check that. And so, uh, and so that's a huge demand. There's, there's a whole bunch of different satellite servicing business models, but each of those two trucks is designed around this current paradigm that it has one tank of gas. So if you can imagine starting a tow truck company you buy a shiny new tow truck, you go out and you tow three cars, and then you run out of gas, and you throw away the tow truck and you buy a completely new one. The incredible thing about the space industry is that what we're doing up there is so valuable that even that business model can be made to make sense. That blows my mind. But of course, if you've just got a gas station, you can drive the tow truck to the gas station, fill it up with gas. Now you can tow 100 cars or 1,000 cars. That's what we want to do at OrbitFab. Just be the gas station on the corner. And then these tow trucks can come to us. Now, the cars they're towing don't even need a gas cap. They can get towed around, 
but eventually they'll get them as well. And then the tow trucks could deliver fuel or they could bring the satellites to us or even the satellites could come in directly and, and get fuel. Opens up a whole bunch of different things you can do. And, and well beyond just fixing the, the current satellites and, and uh, extending their lives, there's so many new missions that get enabled when you've got a supply of gas, you've no longer got a little, you know, you can imagine it, if you had to carry all your gas, you'd, you'd never drive out of the city you're in because it'd be ridiculous to tow so much fuel. With a network of gas stations, you can drive across the continent. That's the kind of change in the paradigm of operating satellites that we expect to see. As the life cycle for these satellites increases, I don't know if it's 10 times, what do you see that magnitude being? I don't look at it so much as change of lifetimes because often it's just increasing the mobility. You could put a satellite in a different orbit. I mean, if you absolutely positively have to move your satellite that's looking down at the ground to be over a location, like you really want a photo of some event that's going on, you can use like 10 or 20% of the fuel of that satellite just to get to that new location, just to make sure you're there at the right time, which means you can only do that sort of five or six times and you've just junked your satellite. So the entire operations of these satellites is around how we use less fuel. It's not about how you get to the right places and do the right things. It's just how do we do less, which is amazing. So it's not so much about extending life. It's about how you reduce the cost and increase the revenue potential. And so our customers can realize 50% or more of capital expenditure savings. And we shift some of that capex to opex, but then they, they're still realizing massive you know, total life cycle savings. But just moving it to operational expense, you don't have to go out and raise all the capital up front. You pay for it as you make money. And if your business model changes, stop paying for it. Or if you have a huge opportunity, buy some more and go and get that extra revenue. At the moment, everything is locked in when you launch a satellite. You've paid for all of that fuel, whether you're going to need it or not. You're stuck with that satellite in the orbit it's in, and you're never going to be able to move it. You've got zero flexibility if the market changes. You've got zero flexibility to take advantage of new opportunities. And if anything goes wrong and you run out, like you can't extend the mission, it's done. That's it. That's how satellites operate. We are changing that. Mostly, and like I said, mostly this is with the satellite servicing companies. They're the ones that are having the biggest change because they do the interactions and everything else. We're just the infrastructure layer that all that runs on. So right now, you'll be providing fuel that's supplied from the Earth. Yep. And as you mentioned, you know, Ideally, you'd be the first customer for buying that first bit of fuel that is obtained from an asteroid or from some other body that's off of Earth and doesn't have to climb out of the gravity well. In your mind, since you have so much experience in the area and you know working with deep space industries, how much do we stand to save um, on that propellant by getting it from not Earth? Wow. That's a really hard question to answer. <laughs> I, I always prefer to answer these in terms of dollars, sure. but it's it's hard to know where that's going to land because that's, that's a few years away yet. I'll answer it in terms of mass ratios. If you want to launch a ton to orbit, you have to put it on a rocket that weighs at least a thousand tons, right? That's a 0.1% of the mass is useful. And the rest just, just, it goes away trying to get to space. Once you're in space and you want to bring something back from an asteroid, the ratio is about two to one, like 50% of what you bring back, you get to actually use and sell. How does it ever make sense to lift anything off the ground? Like I said before, the amazing thing is that anything makes economic sense at all in space because it's so expensive. What is the most used propellant in, in space, in orbit? Yeah, at the moment it's hydrazine uh, followed by xenon. There's a few other things. 
monomethylhydrazine and nitrous tetroxide, the bipropellant that burns together. Hydrazine's cool, it burns by itself, but it's also one of the most toxic substances known. You know, pros and cons to rocket fuel. <laughs> um, there's, there's no perfect rocket fuel. Liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen gets talked a lot of, uh, about a lot, and that's great for rockets getting off the ground, but you can't store it in orbit. Right? It's, it's, well, you can, but it's terribly expensive, very you know, big equipment. We decided to stay away from that in our business model just because of the amount of capital required to build a storage facility for hydrogen and oxygen and the minimum size that you'd need. There's no such thing as a minimum viable product for hydrogen and oxygen delivery. So we're, we're focused on the storable propellants. And yeah, at the moment, that demand is, is hydrazine and xenon. Now, it's worth noting, hydrazine contains nitrogen. It's in 2H4. Uh, xenon is a noble gas. Neither of these exist on the asteroids or the moon because the things that didn't combine into rocks, when the sun ignited, they got blown to the outer solar system. So the outer solar system is full of water. It's full of hydrogen. Like the, the, the gas giants are full of hydrogen. You know, the xenon's out there somewhere, but it's not in the inner solar system where we are. And so you go to the asteroids, they don't really have much nitrogen. They don't have any xenon. So we need to shift the industry before we're going to be able to sell these propellants. And this is where the work at Deep Space Industries is so important. Let's start using water as a propellant. Let's start using simple hydrocarbons. The asteroids and, and the poles of the moon, they have hydrogen, they have carbon, they have oxygen, they have a few other things, but those are the most important. And with carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, you can make fuels and oxidizers, you can make propellants. That's what we expect to see a shift to. How long that'll take? Well, that depends. But having, uh, having a network of gas stations, we can start tanking then the things that we think are going to be the most useful and offering them in, in that way help to shift the market. We did see in our research that your BHAG, or big hairy audacious <laughs> goal, was to mine an asteroid, which is um, was our company's BHAG as well. My personal yeah. BHAG actually is, is to create permanent jobs in space. If we want to get humanity off this rock, that's what we need to do, right? Where are the, where are the jobs? We need profit-generating businesses, employing people, and then it'll, then it'll take off. Currently, there is zero permanent jobs, so that's it. How do we make that first permanent job in space? Asteroid mining is just a means to an end. What is that person going to do? Uh, would you like a job as a gas station attendant? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. So I decided in first year university when I was in Australia 25 years ago that um, you know, I wanted to do something good for humanity and, and getting people off this rock. You know, sorry, addressing existential risks is the most important thing we can do. And if you can get humans living and, and surviving off Earth, you've doubled the bets of humanity, right? You, you've addressed a whole bunch of existential risks. So I would work on that. But in Australia, there was no space agency at the time. There was no aerospace companies. I couldn't just trust somebody else to figure out how it's done and, and get to work on it. So I had to figure it out myself. I decided that governments are always going to have limited budgets and they don't have an incentive to put more and more and more people in space. Right. So so they go up on, on six month research trips and that's kind of it. But there's no settlement in space through through government programs. So it had to be commercial. I also realized anywhere there's a job, there are people living. It's all about creating jobs and to create jobs and commercially, you need to be profit generating. So you find the most remote part of the world. If there's minerals there and you can make a job or if there's something worth doing and you create jobs, there are people. And so I thought, okay, that's, that's what we're going to do. And my list of industries that I thought could pay for the first permanent job in space was tourism and mining. Now, I've since added uh, in-space manufacturing, entertainment content. I love what Tom Cruise is going to do. I'd love to see the first Olympic-scale sporting event in space. 
yeah, so tourism, manufacturing, like there's a, there's a whole bunch of other things. But once you've got that first permanent job that, that is sort of effectively an export job, then you want to support them and make them happier and like not have to pay to bring them back to earth and change and train a new person. So you want to, you want to keep them there as long as possible. You start having this internal economy where you're supplying somebody that lives in space. And what we see on earth, every sort of external, uh, every export job supports about 10 to 100 internal economy jobs. So what we need is a few exports to bootstrap this, and then it'll switch over to internal and the, and the whole thing will grow. But how do you get to the first permanent job in orbit? That's the trick. And so that's what I spent 25 years trying to do. And at the time I said, okay, well, asteroid mining, that's that's gonna be what I do. So how do I build these spacecraft? What is this technically? What is this from a business perspective? So I'm on startup company number four. And as I mentioned, I think Orbit Fab, gas stations in space, the propellant supply chain, that's step number two. We're gonna get there. However, we seem to be able to do a lot of this with robotics. And so what's actually going to be the first permanent job in space? I'll be honest. I think it's going to be the butler at the, the space hotel. I think it's going to be the, the butler, janitor, electrician, chef, plumber, the guy that has to do everything. My money's on that guy being the first permanent employee. And the greatest thing is there are now companies that are looking at setting up commercial space stations, and they're going to need exactly this. There are people who are, who are already training commercial astronauts to start doing this. And they'll start off with little six month trips or even two day trips, but eventually they'll leave somebody there. And as soon as you leave somebody there, you do not want to bring them back. There's going to be all those incentives around how to make this a permanent job and how to live there permanently. So yeah, it's an amazing time. I'm probably in the wrong field, but we'll support it all with this infrastructure. Given the opportunity, would you live in space? Oh, in a heartbeat, yeah. I, 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 tell, my, I tell my friends jokingly, partly joking, that. Um, you know, I, I want to live a, a humble, quiet life and retire in a nice little house with a white picket fence and a view of the Earth. <laughs> you know, the way Orbit Fab fits itself between the deep space industry startup philosophy that was like, let's just run in that direction and figure out what the business model needs to be. And Orbit Fab sits somewhere, probably a lot more in the practical, shorter turnaround return period. I'm just interested in your process. You know, you've, you've learned all this at Deep Space Industries. How did you go about taking those learnings and saying, okay, well, this is going to be step two now? I just went out there and did it wrong. Uh, yeah, I made I made all the mistakes that a young engineer who doesn't even know how to spell engineer might make. I mean, first year university, I decided, oh, well, uh, it is, seems pretty easy. I'll I'll build a satellite that goes to orbit, and then I'll build one that goes to Mars, and then I'll build one that goes to the surface of Mars, and then I'll build one that digs a mine, and we'll bring the material back. This this will only take me five years, right? Let's get on with it. And so I started a, a project to build an amateur radio satellite in my spare time as an undergrad. And I spent the next four years learning how not to build satellites. Yeah, we learned a hell of a lot. None of it would ever fly to space. And that's kind of been how I've approached everything. So I didn't know what it meant to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know about business. I mean, didn't know about engineering. I, so I, I went off and did it. Managed to you know, get lucky, partly through persistence and mostly through luck. I ended up working in Toronto with some of the best microsatellite engineers in the world. They invented the high-performance microsatellites. Uh, and we did you know, the first high-precision telescope in a box, a satellite the size of a, of a briefcase. Uh, it was really, really great mission. We, we got in some papers in science and things like that. 
for the most mission. And I was lucky enough to be on that team and just absorb everything that was coming at me. And then we sort of designed and built some more things. And I I was on on a a bunch of of interesting projects as an engineer, but always had this itch in the back of my mind because of of how I'd started in Australia. I was like, I've got to set something up myself because other people don't have these same ideas. And so I was doing side projects and I was helping people out. And there was a company, Columbia, a one-man band just north of, uh, of... Toronto, uh, near Lake Simcoe, and and he had a, a cannon in his backyard. It was a 10 meter long, 10 centimeter diameter cannon, and his goal was to launch satellites to space out of, and this was just his prototype. And so I started working with him. It's like, oh, I'll build the avionics, like I'll build your radio trackers and things like that. And that got me into looking at, well, we could crash land something into the moon at these same velocities, and we're making our equipment survive. Let's build something that just crashes into the moon to take measurements. And that got me into instrumentation, which ended up with my first startup company, looking at doing instrumentation for the mining industry. And at the same time, I'd, I'd been reading up on mining because, of course, that was that was where I wanted to go. And so the first company I ran was was then techno, mining technology. Uh, and so these kind of things just kept going and it's relentlessly trying to find the opportunities and getting very bored when I'm in something for more than a couple of years and I think I've learned all that I can. It's time for to, to go out to the next thing. And so just sort of stepping through, what do I need to know? How do I, how do I learn the things I need to do? What are the bits that seem to be missing right now? So that bit that seemed to be missing uh, was a realization that if you're going to go and do geological prospecting, these days you drill, you know, 10 or 100 kilometers of drill core. You put 100,000 samples through a wet lab where they, they dissolve the rock in, in toxic chemicals and strong acids. And then you're able to finally figure out what's in the rock and you build up this big model of what's underground. If we want to do that at an asteroid or the moon, Either you're going to have to take an enormous amount of consumables, like a huge amounts of acid and everything else to, to be able to run these assays, or you've got to bring an enormous amount of samples back to Earth. I'm like, well, there's got to be a better way than that. Let's build an instrument that is non-contact, non-destructive, no crushing, no grinding, no wet chemistry, not prone to, to subsampling. So you need to do a bulk analysis. And I came up with something that might work and went to the mining comp- conferences and said, hey, guys, what do you do? Why is this so hard? Tell me why this is a bad idea. And they said, well, if you can build that, we'll buy it. And so that was the start of, of Heliocentric, the, the, the first company, which I then set up in Ottawa. And then the, the next company, Antarctic Broadband, uh, again, looking at what, what is missing here to do these missions, uh, we don't have good comms. You have to use big dishes on the spacecraft to get there. But if you go to higher frequencies, everything shrinks. So what I thought was, let's, let's build a KA band transponder for deep space. And we realized that the same thing was useful for using microsats and nanosats for terrestrial communications, like uh, building a network of small satellites. What effectively has become Starlink and uh, Telesat, OneWeb, Kuiper, these, these constellations, we had that idea 10 years ago, and we built the first KA band transponder for a nanosat and microsat. That's now a commercial product in a couple of companies here in California, even though we did the initial work in Australia. And so that was that was company two. Really, what I wanted to do was to build a deep space transponder that could run at KA, which meant my satellites could be smaller, which meant that we could go off and do it. So you see the idea, I'm always finding these problems where I don't have the bits that I need to do what I want to do. Let's find out who else wants to buy this and build it for them. And so same thing at Deep Space Industries with the thruster, same thing here now with the fueling ports, and then we're looking at rendezvous docking interfaces because we just can't buy them. Slowly we'll chip away at that until a technology exists where we can cost-effectively go and solve people's problems, and then we start putting together bigger systems. 
How do you continually get past your barriers? Stubborn, persistent, risk tolerant. Just, just do it. <laughs> if you, if you can find something that that other people are willing to pay for, and it's hard to do, no one's done it because it's hard. That's great. If you can manage to solve the problem, then no one else is going to be there, and you'll have a you're the market to yourself, right? So, so go do that. You just have to be stubborn enough, and and have enough um, skills and people around you with the skills and the knowledge, and figure out a way to do it. Yeah, not everything is doable. So you also need to hunt around and throw throw things out and give up very quickly. Um, so half of the art is is being persistent, and the other half is giving up quickly. Yeah, you know it's funny listening to you talk about your path and starting in with mining technology because what we're trying to accomplish is literally the exact same thing and things you can commercialize on Earth and then one day flip them up into space and then be usable. You know, autonomous mining and our pursuit is to try like and engage. The Western economy, Western Canada is in a very difficult economic position right now, just because of oil prices and, yeah. and you know we have all this latent talent, like all these brilliant people that have been doing it for you know their entire career have been using state of the art technologies, and I think Canada, Western Canada, is probably the best in the world, and so we're trying to engage that massive talent base and point them in a new direction, right? Point them in a more sustainable direction and something that's more forward looking than just trying to hold on to a past paradigms. So. So yeah, I think, I think there'd be some great collabor- collaboration opportunities between Western Canada, Australia, which now has a space agency and is looking for new programs and things to do, and uh, and the UAE, who uh, who are also looking for a lot of things and also have uh, oil and gas sort of experience. I think that the stitching together the mining and oil and gas interested countries and and provinces would be would be interesting. And there's definitely resources there. I'd really like to see Canada join sort of U.S., Luxembourg, and, and UAE's coming along too with the uh, with the regulations for acknowledging ownership of extracted resources on asteroids on the moon, and that would be a significant step. But even more significant, when you look at 60% of global exploration financing for hard rock mining, 60% of that financing goes through Canada, mostly through the Toronto Stock Exchange. Canada is it's it's the place to go finance your mine exploration. They have a, a level of expertise there second to none. And everything that you do is underpinned by your asset, which is the minerals in the ground, your rights, exclusive rights to those minerals in the ground. You have secure tenure. You now have a tradable thing. You can go and raise money against it. You can sell it to the next person who wants to do the next stage of exploration. What's happened with the regulations in the US and uh, or the, the legislation in the US and Luxembourg is that they've allowed you to, mine, to, to own the rocks after you extract them from an asteroid or the moon. But you have no rights and no tenure over them while they're in the ground. Now, a typical mine you know, it might cost a billion dollars to build a mine. You spend a hundred million dollars deciding whether that's the right mine to build first. And that makes sense. Sometimes you'll spend that money and decide this is not the place we should be. Hopefully you decide that well in advance, but, but you go up to spending a hundred million dollars before you make the billion dollar commitment. We're gonna make similar commitments for mining asteroids in the moon you really want to know that you spend $100 million and somebody else says, oh, I'm going to mine that bit of rock now. and I'm not carrying this debt and these obligations. Who are you going to invest in? The new guy, right? You've just been, you've just been clean jobbed, even if it's on paper, right? You, you won't, no one's going to make that investment up front. You've just cut out all possibilities of mine financing through traditional mechanisms in Canada. And so the only people who will ever do asteroid mining are the billionaires who can take the risks or governments. And the rest of us have just been excluded. So until the legislations allow for secure tenure and there's an international registry of who has tenure over what area, 
you've wiped out you've wiped out financing. It's not accessible. That's one huge thing that has to change. And that's where Canada, because Canadians understand that second and none. Australians are second to, to Canada. So this is why Australia and Canada really should get together and figure this out. And then they can they can tell Luxembourg and the and the UAE and the US how to do it properly. How are those, I guess, negotiations progressing? Yeah, and in the US, they, they passed the laws a couple of years ago. Uh, and in Luxembourg, they've passed the laws as well to recognize ownership of extractive materials. UAE, I don't know whether it's through and into law yet or exactly what stage that at. They released the draft. It's a very similar kind of type of thing. And one of the reasons to take the approach that Luxembourg and the US did was because it's less offensive to say, we'll just own it when it's extracted. And there's, there's some antibodies out there that, that will get agitated if you say anything that looks like it might be ownership or, or uh, national appropriation. And the, the Outer Space Treaty says there is no national appropriation in space. You can't do that. It does, however, provide that there shall be no harmful interference. And I put it to you that if I uh, write a business plan saying I'm going to mine asteroid X and you then come along and mine asteroid X, you've just harmfully interfered with my activity in space when my activity was writing that business plan. And so there is a very strong case to be made that the harmful interference provision in the Outer Space Treaty fully allows for secure tenure of one form or another. And so that's what needs to be interpreted correctly through regulations and legislation. And it's explicitly said in the Outer Space Treaty that the country's party to the treaty needs to interpret the regulation and implement it. And so it's completely reasonable. Of course, this is my my interpretation of the the legal system, and if you ask uh, ask five lawyers, you'll probably get ten different opinions. But someone needs to sit down and figure out how we're going to do secure tenure, because otherwise otherwise we're screwed. And um, you know it'll take a, another fifty or hundred years before asteroid mining really takes off. That's the the political risk side of it. Of course, the other things are what's my tax rate, which court is going to hear a dispute, and these things matter. And, and they all come in when you're doing a, a mine plan. They all come under country risk. And you, you apply a discount rate. And if you want to set up a mine in Zimbabwe, you can do it. The discount rate is 50% because there's a 50% chance every year that the government will appropriate your mine. Now, try and get financing at a 50% discount rate. You go and ask one of these folks what the discount rate is for an asteroid. Probably 20, 25, 30%. I, mean, I don't think it's as bad as Zimbabwe, to be honest, but it's going to be enough to kill your financing. Because there's no secure tenure, there's no courts, you don't have certainty on the tax rate. And any one of these three things can kill you. How long do you think it would take until countries come together? Is this 10 years time or? If it goes through the UN, I worry that it'll get squashed because there's a lot of countries in the UN that, that know that they're unlikely to invest, but want a stake anyway. And they'll throw up roadblocks until they can get the biggest stake. And you see that with the, the law of the sea, the, the International Seabed Authority was set up to, to regulate mining on the seafloor, and they've spent 25 years figuring out what shape of the table to sit around. There are exploration licenses for two different types of mineralogy for the seafloor. No one has any idea what a mining license would look like, and it's completely stalled. Nautilus Minerals, the first company looking to do hard rock mining at the bottom of the ocean, and sort of a mile deep in the ocean, there are deposits of sulfides just coming out of the ground. They call them black smokers. They create uh, fairly large deposits of a very high quality sulfide mineral. And you can just hoover them up, basically. But Nautilus, they've stayed away from, uh, at least until a few years ago, they'd stayed away completely from international seawaters. And they'd gone for Papua New Guinea and Tonga and a few other countries because they could actually work with those governments. 
and uh, and get a mining license. Now they did do a um, a forty three one hundred one resource assessment for an area on the in the seafloor and the international waters, and it was widely seen as a bit of a stunt because the Papua New Guinean government had stalled because there's a discount rate you need to apply for the political risk in Papua New Guinea, and they got stuck by that. It held them up for two or three years. When that all freed up, they immediately gave up on this international seabed and went back to real things. But yeah, that, that just gives you an idea of how dangerous that that kind of structure can can lead to just everything being stalled out. The really interesting one to look at is the mining treaty for Antarctica. And so the Antarctic treaty system isn't UN, it's an intergovernmental sort of multi-party system, originally 14 countries back in 1956. And in the late 70s, they negotiated amongst themselves the mining treaty. How are we gonna regulate mining in Antarctica? And all the countries party that treaty they agreed to it, all the committees, they had a piece of, of legislation that uh, that each country could now pass into law, and, and that was how the treaty system was working. That That is a really interesting piece. I think it, it could work very well, but what actually happened then when they sent it back to all the parliaments to be signed is that domestic politics in Australia and France, they needed the green vote, and they flipped it around into a moratorium against mining. So within two years, that had gone from an agreement on how to regulate mining to a complete moratorium. So opportunity and risk. Yeah, so the, the third thing to, to really look at is how the International Telecommunications Union operates. So the ITU predates the UN. It's a UN administrative body over radio spectrum. And it predates the UN by 70 years or something. Because you know, as soon as radio was invented, people realized that it, it, you could interfere with each other and you really should coordinate. But the ITU also, because they're coordinating spectrum, they also end up coordinating the slots in geostationary orbit. So the ITU effectively has jurisdiction over ownership of real estate in Earth orbit, those orbital slots. And they're also the only administrative body of the UN who've told the UN General Assembly that a resolution that was passed there is not going to fly and they're not going to implement it. And they stood up to the General Assembly because these guys have to make sure that radio communications is going to happen correctly. And that resolution that was passed was, was just not tenable. So I've got a lot of hope in the ITU. Using spectrum to end up, spectrum rights to end up with effectively real estate rights, they've already drifted in that direction. It's hideously bureaucratic. It's a terrible organization to do anything quickly in, but it has worked. It's avoided World War III. We have radio communications working. It's a whole bunch of reasons why it's the best of, of the bad options we've looked at. So yeah, the, the ITU is one option and a multi-government, um, multilateral agency like the Antarctic Treaty System, that's another option. Those two I see as viable. A resolution through the General Assembly, I see as very problematic. Space, the final frontier in science, humanity, and also maybe politics. <laughs> I would like World War Three not to be fought over space. I just wouldn't like World War Three, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah um, that too. <laughs> so, how many years until OrbitFab is being able to harvest the resources themselves off Earth and be able to supply that to the market? It's going to take a few years. I mean, we need to we need to get in there and serve the markets for hydrazine and xenon, as mentioned, for the, the current propellants that folks use. And then there's a few other propellants we keep getting asked to, to fly different things. So you know, we, we have a roadmap. We're not sure how how far out the end of that roadmap is in terms of the big things you want to achieve with, with asteroid mining. It's going to be at least five years until we've got this stood up and can start thinking about it. However, we're already trying to push on this rope, right? We're already trying to move things. So we're in discussions with some of the folks that want to land on the moon. 
as to whether they can extract anything from the moon and we'd like to buy it. We'd like to buy it to set a precedent. We'd like to buy it to be able to do some tests on it. If they can extract water from it or, or somebody else can, we'd like to buy the water. We'd like to do some tests with that water. The, the, we've got five to 10 years to make all this work before we actually want to be selling the water. We, we'd want to build up that capability. Well, we'd love to sell you the water. When do you need it? Someone published a block model for the moon very recently, yeah. um, which which was great. Like we're finally at the point and there's, there's some speculative stuff in there. And of course we need to go down and verify it. But the mm-hmm. fact that we're up to the point where, where someone's gone, oh yeah, we're going to need a block model. Let me make one and, mm-hmm. and published it. It was just fantastic. So this stuff's coming along. And you know, it's just hard to get through that shell of the resistance. I mean, you must've gone through it a thousand times, but you know, people being like, wow, this isn't realistic and you know I just yeah, you can't amazing. do it Even because of x y and z you got to break it down and there's there's actually a, a great phrase in in silicon valley here where all the vcs are trying to find the next google and the next big thing right you have to be you have to be right of course in your in your business thesis but you also have to be contrarian because if you're just selling the same thing everyone else is selling if everyone agrees with you you're selling a commodity there are no margins in commodities right? Everyone's just going to squeeze you unless you believe something different. So you have to be contrarian and you have to be right. Problem is it's easy to be contrarian and wrong. And the trick is to figure out the difference between contrarian and wrong and contrarian and right. But at least you've got to be contrarian. And so don't take it as a, as a bad sign when people think you're full of, your idea is full of shit, right? If they're agreeing with you, you might, you might have trouble. 20 no's before you get the yes, right? That's it. Well, 20. I think uh, the list of investors we talk to to get funding is about 150. <laughs> so if you're at 20, your your idea is more consensus. Than we still have some yeah. more. <laughs> We're not contrarian. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't got funding yet. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. But yeah, you just, you just got to keep working at it. Find out why people don't like it. And you don't necessarily have to agree with them. You just have to decide what your counter is to that, right? Do you have, do you need to go off and do the math and show them the numbers? Do you have to get customers signed? Do you have to get technical reports done? Or do you just believe that they're wrong, that your your vision of the future is right and theirs is wrong? And you know that's your contrarian viewpoint. That's perfectly fine. Of course, you should then convince yourself that you're absolutely right. How much water do you need to equate to the amount of, I guess, any other type of fuel that's immediately available if you were to use water as a technology? Welcome to the world of propulsion engineering. It depends. <laughs> um, when you when you put it that way, what is water and how are you using it as a propellant? So you have you have two things here. The fuel efficiency is directly proportional to the the speed at which you throw the atoms out the back or the molecules. And so the smaller the molecules are, the faster you can throw them out the back for the same energy. If they have a, if it's a chemical propellant, the amount of energy that you have to throw them out the back at any speed is limited by the chemical energy in that in that chemical. And hydrogen and oxygen, uh, water is very light. Hydrogen and oxygen burns to make water. Effectively, that's a water thruster, and the energy is coming from that hydrogen oxygen reaction, which is incredibly energetic. You actually overdose the engine with hydrogen if you've got excess hydrogen available, uh, and that lowers the molecule mass which means the exhaust velocity is faster. So you get better fuel efficiency by putting hydrogen in that doesn't even burn. Welcome to to, to rocket. (laughs) Bizarre. So if you've got an electric thruster, you can put more energy in without having to have it stored chemically. 
which means you can get a much higher propellant efficiency because you can get higher exhaust velocities. But then the energy you need to put in means you, you need bigger solar arrays. Where do you get the energy? And that energy goes up with MV squared. So it's the exhaust velocity squared. So you've got to pump a lot more energy in as you incrementally increase that fuel efficiency. And that means you've got to pay for the solar array. You've got to pay for an expensive thruster. Nothing is ever straightforward. And that's why the, the thruster we made at Deep Space Industries, the flying steam kettle, it was dirt cheap. It ran on water, which is non-toxic. And you get thirsty, you go drink the fuel that launched that, right? But, but because it was not toxic, you could build the whole spacecraft around a fully fueled engine. And you didn't need any extra safety gear. Whereas if you're mm -hmm. using hydrazine, it's, it's toxic at 50 parts per billion. And so you can't have any hydrazine. And when you go to fill it up, you evacuate the building. You've got guys in bunny suits. It can cost a million dollars just to put the fuel in the tank. It's that dangerous. So the whole life cycle cost of this little flying steam kettle, dirt cheap. The flip side, not that great fuel efficiency. And that's what everyone's got to trade off. So yeah. the answer to your question is you need to build a bit more of a complex model and figure that out. I can't mm -hmm. give you a, a simple numeric answer. But I think if you can find the volumes of water, then it's not even a question, right? Once like you've just, got huge availability of water yeah. and, and you drive that price to, to you know very low, then yeah, the equation's going to solve itself in the right way. And there's also going to be new and interesting ways to accelerate water to, to get high exhaust velocities. And so that's why there's a range of, of companies working right. on water-based propellant, uh, water-based propulsion systems. And they have different exhaust velocities, different uh, fuel efficiencies, different costs, different different requirements. Yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a complex problem. But that's well, one of those ones, right? If you can solve it, then you're probably alone in the market. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us, Daniel. Learned a lot and really intrigued and, and excited to see what you have coming up. And if people want to follow you or get in touch, how can they, what's, what's the best way? Go on LinkedIn and, and find me there. Go to OrbitFab website, find us there. We're actively hiring. We're looking for engineers. We're looking for the industry's best business development people. So find our careers page or uh, or just send us an email. Yeah, that's that's the best way to get in touch. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks, Jared. This has been really yeah. good. Uh, yeah, good good luck with your endeavor too. I, I'd love to buy some uh, some fuel from you one day. We hope you enjoyed our chat with a true pioneer in the space mining industry. If you have any comments or questions, pop by peterlucas.ca slash unearthed and leave us a note. Or you can contact us at the Twitter handle at Space Unearthed. Godspeed. Godspeed.